Hey folks, Dude2Joe here from Two Dudes One Double Feature. Before we get started with today's episode, I just want to give a great big shout out to Alex, Wykey, and Andrew Gifford for stepping in and talking about these three, uh, these three very special movies. Uh, I know Richard and I are fans of these movies, but we couldn't think of anybody better suited to talk about them than uh, than Wykey and Gifford. Just uh, also keep in mind the second half of the episode is not the best as far as audio quality is concerned. Our good man John Armstrong has done his best to mitigate this, so just keep that in mind. Also, it should go without saying, if you listen to this show long enough, this is not for children. Gifford and Wykey's opinions are their own. And uh, yeah, enjoy this week's spectacular, maybe dare I say it, amazing, and not really, we'll just call it this week's Sam Raimi episode of Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Yeah, I don't know if it works. I just came out of seeing Spider-Man. Anyway, here's the show. This is, my name is uh, Alex Wykey. Uh, I've been a guest on the show a couple of times. Um, I was also Jimmy uh, during, the, during the Halloween special. And to my side is the always lovely and beautiful person. Please introduce yourself, sir. Thank you, Wykey, for the amazing introduction. I am Andrew. I have been a go- uh, guest as well on the show. And um, so... You know, we're we're kind of just taking over for Richard and Joey as the new dude one and dude two for this one episode. <laughs> we're giving them a little bit of a break, and plus, what we're talking about today is is straight up uh, me and Alex's alleys. We're, our expertise on these films are just unmatched. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if anything that if there was going to be any movie you and I had to talk about on this show at some former some way shape or form it had to be these movies so it's really great to actually be able to talk about them but before we get into all that i just want to say one thing how are you doing buddy (laughs) man i so right now i'm just happy to be talking to you for what feels like the first time in three years (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to put it in perspective honestly honestly it feels like i haven't talked to you actually like personally in the duration between spider-man 2 and 3 <laughs> if you put it if you think about it <laughs> oh my god you're right it does it <laughs> you're right it does kind of feel like that you could you could just really that's the gap that's the gap yeah I mean, like, we have talked to each other on, like, through Facebook Messenger and stuff like that, but hearing each other's voices, it's been far, far too long. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Hearing your voice again, it's just, it's super great. Uh, 
So how's everything in the life of Gifford? Any like new updates? Anything you want to let the audience know? Anything like that? Well, you know, I've been trying to take care of my uh, body, for instance. Like right before this, I went to the gym. I hit the gym. I got pumped up before this. I'm trying to like lose some weight and stuff. So, so that's uh, a positive thing. Trying to take care of myself. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's really cool. That's really good. It's nice to, I, you know, my roommate. He's a really big fitness guy, and like I, I envy him because it's like he can just put himself in a rhythm when it comes to that gym stuff. And I mean, like I. I can put my mind to it. Like I can go to the gym and I can work out and put a hundred percent. It's just committing to like doing it regularly where I struggle. Yeah, no, I, I but, feel that. Yeah, that's really, but no, that's really cool. That is really cool. It's nice to hear that you're getting out and active, especially in how times have been, you know, not a lot of people have been able to get out and do things. I mean, more so now than they were before, but I mean, that's still a good thing. Yeah, and, and, and you know, get, getting out of the house and stuff, more than ever, you appreciate, like, the time you're, you're getting, you know, get being able to go out and not really have to necessarily be, you know, afraid, you know. <laughs> yeah, ex- yeah, exactly, exactly. I know exactly what you feel. Um, yeah, um, now in terms of my life, uh, yeah, things are going pretty good. Uh, I'm seeing Dune tonight, so that's pretty exciting. Ooh, you know what? I'm actually seeing it tonight yeah, like, as well. Act- Oh, you see, right when we get done with this, you and I are probably going to go head straight to the theater yep. then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have, you been, have you been seeing the reviews for that movie? So all I saw was that it has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I am seeing a lot of people compare it to like, of course, this, this feels like hyperbole, but the next Star Wars, the next Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and you you get those a lot when you get, like, a lot of, like, big new blockbusters. I guess this is technically not a new blockbuster because Dune has been done before. I mean, not well, but it's been done <laughs> before. But, um, but yeah, that, I have heard that comparison before. I think the one thing that makes me worried is that I know a lot of people, including Denis Villeneuve and people at Warner Brothers, they've made it sound like part two is inevitable. But there's that part of it in the back of my head that's just like, well... What if it does happen, but because, I mean, like, I'm not going to try to jinx it, knock on wood, mm-hmm. but what's to say it doesn't make that much money and they just make a bunch of changes, come, come part two around, comes around, and we just have another, like, Justice League 2017 oh. whole situation. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, again. you know, here's, so here's the thing, too, right? Because they have it coming out on HBO Max as well, I mean, that's going to take some of the box office out, right? Some of the money. So... I don't know. Maybe maybe right. Warner Brothers is looking at it like, okay, we can't judge the movie's box office fully, you know. Like we got to consider, like, well, we did put it on a streaming service, so that's going to take a cut out of what it could have made if if they just didn't even put it up on there. Yeah, and I know they also said that if they if it's successful on HBO Max, they'll still do the sequel. But I guess the only problem with HBO Max is that, especially with the because I know this was a problem when uh, Black Widow came out. Actually, I think you might have heard about this. Uh, it leaked online because piracy has been so big now with these whole streaming services just releasing their movies same day. So Makes sense. It actually leaked online. Yeah, so I've been avoiding everything about that. I mean, like, I don't care too much about spoilers about something if it's an adaptation of a book, you know, because it's like, 
why am I, why do I care about being spoiled about something that's like over 50 years old? <laughs> yeah, that that literally but, like Dune literally influenced all of popular sci-fi. <laughs> you know, it influenced Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, honestly, like it influenced Star Wars, so it's like so like when they make those comparisons that it's the new Star Wars, like it makes sense, but yeah, so but yeah, I'm not too worried about spoilers. Um I have a feeling Dune 2 will still happen, like those fears in the back of my head, like, they're still prominent, but I don't know. I have faith in Denis Villeneuve, and quite frankly, uh, I was gonna, we're just going to see where the chips will fall as they may. Now, it's funny that you bring up uh, a little bit ago, it's funny you bring up Spider-Man 3, because uh, today, the movies we're talking about are quite often considered the Godfather trilogy of the superhero genre. Um, at least in my eyes, they, it can be considered that. Um they were the ones that kind of set, I would say, set the tone for how Marvel movies were made for a long period of time, and maybe even still to this day. And those movies just so happened to be the Sam Raimi-directed Spider-Man trilogy, starting off with 2002's blockbuster epic Spider-Man. Now, I remember, oh man, I remember when this movie came out, I was... I was a huge Spider-Man fan. My dad, he used to he ha- he hummed the Spider-Man theme one time when I was little and I asked him, "What are you singing?" and then he told me, "Oh, it's the Spider-Man theme." And I was like, "What's Spider-Man?" <laughs> and that kind of barreled into, you know, the obsession of how it is now. And I remember when they announced that that movie was happening, my mind melted. I was like, "They're making a Spider-Man movie." It's just I think I think what it was, I didn't, did you see the, uh, the, the teaser trailer that they pulled after 9-11 when it came out? Yeah, so, so speaking of that trailer, not only is that interesting enough that they had a whole teaser trailer that they had to pull out of theaters because it showed the Twin Towers in them, but there's the poster too that's extremely rare where you can see the Twin Towers in Spider-Man's eye, right? You remember that poster? Like, I always just thought that was a really cool, like, piece of, like, memorabilia that's extremely rare. But if you can get it, like, I mean, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, man, I wanted to get my hands on that poster for, like, years. Same. They're so expensive to try to find. And, you know, and it's actually kind of interesting because in the movie, uh, during that whole montage scene, they still have the frame of his eyes and if you pause it you can see the twin towers are still in the reflection of his eye lenses that's cool that's actually pretty interesting yeah that that is yeah but uh yeah yeah now sadly i didn't get to see the trailer when it was in theaters um because i don't know i had this whole phobia of trailers when i was younger because i was afraid of the mgm lion and i was afraid that an mgm movie trailer would pop up and that lion would come up and freak me out so i never saw (laughs) trailers for a long fucking time and uh and i remember like years years passed and i remember i watched that trailer and i was like this could have been my first exposure to the Spider-Man movie like happening. If I saw that trailer in theaters, I would have screamed my head off like, what? Because I know my first exposure to it was, I think it was the Super Bowl ad because they had a Super Bowl ad for it. Um, and it was just, you know, like quick cuts, you know, clips from the movie and stuff like that. But you just, you see that suit and you just see how perfectly well translated it is, at least visually. And you're just like, 
I'm sold. I am 100% sold. I remember like just being so excited for it. And man, this is, it's really interesting how this movie really kind of set the template for superhero movies. I mean, like it kind of follows the same basic superhero origin structure that was the theme for a lot of those early 2000s superhero movies. I mean, like I think of like ones like Daredevil or um, a couple of other ones that right. I think of. Uh, the Fantastic Four. Like, Angley's Hulk to some degree, you know. To some degree, yeah. Yeah, like they it definitely kind of had that same vibe. Like this movie had that impact. Just I'm just like, okay, we're going to take something that has never been seen on screen before and just make it as like as big and as best it can be. And like they they do it in Aces. This is probably in my opinion the definitive Spider-Man movie just because I feel like it gets the Everything about Spider-Man's lore, it gets down to a T in the most, like, digestible way possible. Because you get the origin story, which, surprisingly enough, that's, like, a good chunk of the movie. Like, I remember when I was rewatching, it, I was like, oh, my God, we're 45 minutes into the movie and he's not in the suit yet. Yeah, well, one of the reasons I, I, I love the first movie is because they spend so much time on the origin and just setting up. It's a very human movie, so they, they spend time establishing Peter Parker as a character first before I, if I don't if I remember correctly, he doesn't put on the Spider-Man suit until well into like an hour into the movie because they spend so much time establishing like his yeah, his home like, life, you know so I, I just love how Sam Raimi managed to take a, a larger than life superhero like Spider-Man. And managed to ground, uh, ground him, you know? Yeah. So, um, now I know this has always been kind of a topic of debate, you know, like who's the best Spider-Man and stuff like that. But we, it, it'd be, it'd be hard for us to talk about this movie without talking about Spider-Man, Peter Parker, the man himself, Tobey Maguire. Now, what did you think of Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man when you saw the movie? Well, when I was younger, I was just happy that I was seeing Spider-Man on my screen. I didn't really think too much about, you know, right, Tobey, you know. But as years have gone on, I one of the things I, I love about Tobey is just that he's so dorky. <laughs> like... He's very relate. He really is. Honestly. He's very relatable in that sense of like, yeah, he he's just a dork, and he really is just an ordinary guy that gets bitten by this spider, and you you really feel like there is a, a real evolution there with, with how he like gains confidence throughout the movie, you know, and you can see like that in in his relationships, like with Mary Jane and Harry, how those sort of you know, grow over time. Um, I, I love Toby, man. Toby's great. <laughs> no, I do too. Like, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love, uh, Andrew and Tom Holland, but like Toby McGuire, he was my first Spider-Man, at least live action Spider-Man. Yes. And from that element alone, I feel like he's always going to have a special place in my heart. And like, I know some people complain about like, Oh, he's not jokey enough, which Quite frankly, I don't think I think that's unfair because I mean he does he has a quite a bit of quips in the movie. I feel like the reason he doesn't seem as quippy is because you you don't really see him in the suit that often. I mean you do there's a lot of scenes with him as Spider Man, but they spend a lot of time like you getting to know him as Peter Parker. So I feel like you don't get a lot of that jokey side because he's not really in the suit as often. But 
even then it's just like they get everything else down pretty much to a T. I mean, obviously, except for the fact that he has organic web shooters instead of the mechanical ones, which when I was a kid, I remember I saw that in theaters and I was like, Hey, wait, what? <laughs> like, cause like I'm a kid and I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and I'm just sitting there like Spider-Man doesn't shoot webs out of his arm <laughs> without web shooters. But then I thought about it and I was like, I mean, it would make sense for a, like a genetically enhanced spider. If it gave him the abilities to climb walls and like jump from building to fucking building and have spider sense that he would be able to just be able to shoot webs out of his arm. Scientifically, it makes sense. But at the same time, sometimes I understand the perspective of like, well, because he doesn't make the web shooters, that is one less thing you get to see Toby uses his brain to solve, you know? Because you don't necessarily see Toby, like, getting hands-on and, like, making stuff throughout the movies like uh, the other Peter Parkers we've seen, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the other Spider yeah, the other Spider Man that have come out after him have been a lot more tactical and I've really liked that because like that's an aspect about Spider Man that I really love. But these movies really slam the humanity of Peter Parker because you really relate to him and stuff like that. Like there are scenes like I mean, there are moments where Peter can be a little insufferable. I mean, he does cry a lot, but it's <laughs> like I don't really see that as a negative. I see that just as like I mean, it's human emotion. It's I mean, the guy literally just lost his uncle, watched him die before his eyes. I mean, I would cry at my graduation if basically my father figure died and wasn't there. And it was basically my fault. Like, I would cry. Mikey, speaking of Uncle Ben, you know, Cliff Robertson as Uncle Ben. So good. (laughs) He's so believable in that, like, sort of stand-up, blue-collar, like, guy type of role. Like, you totally believe that this is the guy that that would be like Peter's support, you know. <laughs> He's such a warm individual and they really they really spend a lot of time with you getting to know him. Like that was something I was really appreciative of cuz when you read Amazing Fantasy 15, you know, his original origin story, Uncle Ben's barely in it. Like you don't really get to know Uncle Ben that much as like a father figure or like a personality, but in this movie and like in comics that came out after that, after the original Spider-Man comic, they really let you sit with Peter's relationship with uncle Ben, how important uh, it was for him and shaping him as an individual. I mean, he's the one who gives them the great power comes great responsibility speech, which that's not in the comics. I mean, the saying is in the comics, but uncle Ben canonically did not tell him that. So having him be the one to give him that lesson, I feel like is very important. And Cliff Robinson, he does such a great job. I love the lines that they give him, too. Like, him and his chemistry with Rosemary Harris, just like, just don't fall on your ass. I'm already on my ass, May. When the senior electrician is laid off after 40 years, what else do you call it? I am on my ass. Like, I just... I'm, I, I, I hear stuff like that, and I was like, that's that's like stuff my dad would say. And, and that's what I appreciate with, with the way they set him up before his, he dies and, you know, he gives the speech to Peter is that they really establish him very well. And if it wasn't someone as, like, war- that, that uh, had as much warmth as Cliff Robertson, I'm not sure it would have uh, necessarily translated as well in the performance, you know? Yeah, I don't think so either. And it's like... I mean, it clearly made an impact because he's in all three movies, oh, yeah. like in flashbacks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I'm glad, and I'm glad they do that and they like, utilize it. I mean, yeah, it could be a little excessive, but 
I mean, this is supposed to be a trilogy. I kind of look at these movies more as like one overarching story. I mean, I know they were going to make more after that, but we'll get into that later. Um, but that being said, though, it's like, yeah, man, he has such a great impact. That scene when he dies, it, God, oh, I remember dude. that was so sad. Like, and it's like, it's rough. And, I knew, and it's like, I was anticipating it because. Yeah, I mean, you're anticipating it because you know Spider-Man's origin story. You know Uncle Ben's going to die. But when it happens, you're just like, oh, my God. And just Toby totally sells it with the performance. You really feel the anger when he is, like, leaping and going after um, the guy, uh, Dennis Carradine. Yes. Was yep. that his name in 3? Well, yes, said? in 3 yeah. they say that's his name. In the original, he's literally just listed as, like, thug. Bank rob, like bank robber, thug. <laughs> He's just nameless, right? Yeah. Since we're talking about father figures, we got to talk about the father figure himself, the evil <laughs> father figure that is Willem Dafoe as a Green Goblin. I love Willem Dafoe's performance as Norman Osborn. He steals every scene he is and choose the scenery is having a ball it is it is so good to watch so much fun he's relishing in every moment of of it and relishing every line of dialogue well you know willem dafoe in the movie i think is a perfect sort of contrast like one of the thing like what i love about Raimi's direction here is he knows when to pull it back and, and have things be more, you know, like based in like emotion and, and drama and stakes. But with Willem Dafoe, he's just a campy, like Saturday morning cartoon villain <laughs> when he's the green goblin with his power Rangers right? costume. <laughs> you haven't seen the last right. of me. The itsy bitsy spider. <laughs> and, and to me, oh like that was what I loved was like, it really encapsulated that sort of like comic book camp that a lot of studios and, and filmmakers were afraid to really embrace at this point. And, and they were just like, no, 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 let's just like, we'll offset the campiness with real stakes and, and emotional like groundedness with the other characters. And I love it. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of, it proves positive why Sam Raimi was such a perfect choice to direct this movie because like you watch his other films like the Evil Dead trilogy or um or even Dark Man the superhero movie he made before this it's like he knows how to balance like really just heavy themes and like a lot of stakes and a lot of like deep emotion with just full on camp and you could tell he really respects Spider-Man as a character and really understands this world and how it's supposed to be portrayed because it does really feel like a comic book brought to life. Like I think of that montage, like we were talking about it earlier, that whole montage when Peter Parker is Spider-Man for the first time officially. Mm -hmm. And he's going around saving people and people are like, this is not the man. My brother saw him building a nest on the Lego central park. <laughs> he's kind of hot. And you see stuff like that. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, did you know that's Lucy Lawless? Yeah, that, when I found that out, it kind of blew my mind. I didn't know. I had no idea until much later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense because I found out Sam Raimi produced uh, Xena Warrior Princess. So, of course, he had to get her in there. But well, like, th that whole sequence, dude, I, that whole sequence, I think, really like shows the self-aware humor in this movie. Like, They knew exactly the kind of movie they were making. And uh, it, it really, like, back to actually something you were saying earlier um, about, 
you know, Toby's line delivery, like making quips and witty remarks. See, what I appreciate is that a lot of what he says is just really dumb. <laughs> And and they know it's dumb, and they know it's really yeah, stupid. I, I do too. <laughs> you know, it's like it's you who's yeah, out, like, Gobby, yeah. out of your mind. <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> you know, right? Like, yeah, yeah. No, I really appreciate that because it's like, I mean, God, like, it sucks because superhero movies nowadays, it seems like they either they can only go one or two ways. They can either they either have to be silly to the point where it's like they have to acknowledge everything is just like they have to make jokes but not so much jokes within like the tone of the movie more so much just like like they're aware they're actors playing superheroes in a superhero movie you know what i mean when i say I, that I, th- I do i understand Raimi does a great job of making these this universe that spider-man is inhabiting feel lived in because with all the extras who i'm sure will come up a lot throughout this because sam Raimi does such a great job of bringing in memorable act extras but like it, it feels like all these like characters oh especially in the second especially one. in the second one when you see all these different extras and they're so memorable you realize like oh yeah like this is a world where like there are all sorts of different characters that we're not even seeing, and they're impacted by Spider-Man in some sort of way. And that's one of the reasons I love about that sequence, uh, where they like show all the characters being asked about yeah. Spider-Man. We don't see enough of that in modern superhero movies, where they don't take a minute to just show like what, what are the yeah. civilians thinking about all the craziness in the Marvel Universe, you know? Right. It you know that's the thing that's it's it's great that you bring that up because that was another point I wanted to make is that they really make New York City feel like a character in and of itself in this movie. It's like and that's the whole thing about Spider-Man is that he is so like like tied to New York City. Like he's almost he's an icon to that city even of itself. Like I remember when you and I when we went to New York City, like we saw people dressed up as Spider-Man mm-hmm. like left and right and it, like, you can't separate Spider-Man from New York. Speaking of that, funny thing. I went to New York maybe two or three years ago with my father and my two brothers. We went on the Empire State Building, and I went with a Spider-Man hoodie. And people would actually go out of their way to be like, oh, nice Spider-Man hoodie. <laughs> like, they feel pride, man, <laughs> that Spider-Man <laughs> is, like, their character. Right? No, they do. I mean, I mean, he is. I mean, that's crazy to think about because Spider-Man is such an iconic superhero. Like he's, I think he sold more merchandise even to that of Batman. Sorry, I mean, I mean, Richard might want to cut that part out. But <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's not in the final edit, we'll know who who got it cut. <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, like, but he's such an iconic character that it's like. It's crazy, though, that, like, the city of New York just takes so much pride in such a fictional character like that. And he has made an impact so much so. And I love that the movie, like, really makes New York feel like a character because, I mean, one, they probably did it because, you know, it was post 9-11. You know, like, the unity in that city was really strong at that time. Well, so, fun fact, I'm sure you know this, but the scene when Spider-Man is trying to rescue Mary Jane and the kids from the Green Goblin. In that scene, that was actually a reshoot. They added that later when when all the civilians are, like, throwing stuff at the Green Goblin. They wanted that to, like, sort of get, like, the crowds in New York getting all hyped up and cheering and stuff. I always loved that fun fact. 
Because it gets me excited every time I watch the movie. <laughs> you mess with New York. <laughs> you mess with one of us. You mess with all yeah. of us. Like, you know, it's funny. Like, some people look at that and go, like, oh, that takes you out of the movie. I was like, this entire movie is corny as hell. Like, that is, like, it's the same level of corny. And plus, I kind of looked at it less like a whole, like, you know, like 9-11 pandering scene and saw it more like a conclusion to that whole arc of, like, people in New York hating Spider-Man. Because that is a big thing in this movie is that, like, people don't know whether or not to trust Spider-Man. I mean, it doesn't really feed in until a little later because there's one guy who is probably the most perfectly cast comic book actor ever. Um there's one guy who really hates Spider-Man in this movie, and it's not just the Green Goblin. It is the man himself, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. It says a lot that I bet people listening to this, before you even said his name, I'm sure everyone knew. <laughs> That's like how... J- <laughs> everyone knew. J.K. Simmons is literally J. Jonah Jameson taken right off the page. Like... <laughs> Like, 100%. And, you know, and and it says a lot that he's the one casting that has really carried over because, you know, as we we saw him in Far From Home, at you know, like, you literally can't do better. Yeah, they showed him. Yeah, like, they they have him in Far From Home because, and, like, they didn't even recast him in the Amazing movies because they know there was no way to top his performance. So, like, his performance has just transcended these movies. And, my God. Every scene in the Daily Bugle is just comedy gold. Oh, there's so many. Every line of dialogue. So many amazing lines in that movie, you know. And also, I love it too because after everything, you know, after you see like, you know, uh, when the Green Goblin crashes into the Daily Bugle, you see he's actually kind of a, he actually defends Spider-Man a little bit. And I always thought that was interesting how they they show right almost from the get go like oh yeah like he's really loud and obnoxious and says all this like horrible stuff about Spider Man but when it comes down to it when the Green Goblin is asking for like who takes the pictures like J Jonah Jameson doesn't tell him I always thought that was interesting <laughs> yeah like I mean like they I like that they show him that he's like he's not inherently bad there's another scene like that in the second one but we'll talk about that mm-hmm. later and uh, and. And it really shows, it really shows him at, like give him humanity as a character. And like we said, that that's a great thing that Sam Raimi does in this movie is like add a lot of humanity to these characters. Like, like because my God, like going off from uh, moving away from J.K. Simmons for a little bit, like moments of like real emotion. It's like I think about all those scenes between like Harry and Norman and stuff like that. Like the weight that they hold in them. And you really feel it. You feel the tension and just like the, the history between Harry and Norman in every scene they have. And it's like, I don't know what it is. Just Sam Raimi just knows how to just, just make you feel for these characters. Like just for like, with just little, little moments of just character pieces, just like little bits of lines. It's a, it's a mix of like perfect dialogue. And then also the actors are perfectly cast. Like it feels like whenever Willem Dafoe and, and James Franco are on screen together, you really feel like, Oh, they, they had to have spent years together before this point. Cause you really feel that emotion there. 
And, and I always did think it was funny how, like, yeah, Willem yeah. Dafoe is so good because, you know, he's Willem Dafoe does such a great job of sort of balancing the very, like, campy performance as the Green Goblin. But then as Norman, he's a very flawed guy. And But then James Franco is sort of just James Franco. <laughs> but it works for Harry. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, like, that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing that kind of... A, if I had to give a criticism to this movie, again, like, I'm being insanely biased because this is one of my favorite movies of all time. But it's like, if I had to give a criticism for this movie, it's just like, outside of the Norman Harry aspect, I feel like Harry's character gets kind of, shoot, like, sidelined. Like, he's literally just there to just be a third wheel to the whole Mary Jane, Peter love triangle thing. Like, it feels like that's his only purpose Yeah, in some scenes. I mean, yeah, I know he's like, Peter's best friend and stuff like that. And he gets a lot more to do in the other movies, but I don't know. In this first one, it does kind of feel like he's just James Franco, which I feel like it works because Harry in the comics, it's like he always has, at least to me, been kind of just like, you know, just kind of the timid guy. But then when Norman dies, you really start to see just how much of a black heart Harry actually has. Yeah. Well, he is his father's son. Ultimately, (laughs) I mean, that is a whole theme of these movies is like the sins of the fathers. Yes. So, but um, like, I'm trying to think. Also, uh, I kind of wanted to bring this up a little later, but I think I got to bring Ooh. it up now. Uh, so Kirsten Dunst as uh, Mary Jane, she's kind of polarizing, I've noticed, when it comes to Spider-Man fans. Like, people either love her or hate her as Mary Jane. Well, you know, I, I think in this movie, I would say this is probably her most likable as as Mary Jane, like, because in, in the, you know, f- films after this, I would say she becomes more polarizing. Here, I, I thought she serves her role well. She's the perfect, like, girl next door. You can totally see why Peter would like her, you know, and, and have interest in her. I think in this movie especially, yeah. like, she, she works as Mary Jane very well. Um, I had a crush on her when I was a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> I, I won't lie. <laughs> yeah, no, I did too. I did too. I mean... Yeah, I had a thing for redheads, but yeah, I I will say I would agree with that. That this movie, like in terms of how she is as a person, it it seems like this is the one where she's like the most believable, at least the most relatable in that sense. I mean, I think the only criticism, at least I can think of with it, is that she gets in trouble a lot, like gets in kidnapped a lot, gets in trouble a lot, (laughs) to the point where you're just like, okay, how? Like, Like you're just like. It's like really like this every villain has the same idea. <laughs> and like I understand Sam Raimi felt very strongly about the Peter Mary Jane relationship. I understand that's the heart of the movies and I get that he wanted to, you know, make emphasize like Mary Jane is the most important person and thing in Peter's life. But, like, do you have to keep doing that over and over? Like, we kind of get it. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it just doesn't feel realistic that she would be in this, like, she would, like, stay with Peter after having to deal with all this. Yeah. I would argue. <laughs> Constantly. Yeah. I mean, like, I get it because it's, like, it, it does add a little bit of that connection to her. Because the one thing I do like is that they almost hint that she's more in love with Spider-Man than she is with Peter to begin with. Like, I really like that because that is something that happens in the comics. Yeah 
a lot. That happens with Black Widow, I feel. No, not Black Widow. Black Cat. <laughs> like, Black Cat. Uh, yeah, Black Cat, yeah. she loves Spider-Man, but not necessarily Peter Parker. So I kind of liked how the dual identity kind of had a whole, whole play in this. Although I do find it a little unrealistic that this person that has lived next to Peter Parker literally almost her entire life can't recognize her his voice with the mask <laughs> I was actually just about to say that how do you like not mis- like how do you mistake Toby Maguire's nasally voice like <laughs> right <laughs> Peter that is that you under there <laughs> it is funny it's like wait who are you you know who I am I do all right hi Peter oh. <laughs> To- Toby, <laughs> I loved you in Pleasantville. I do love that. Uh, oh <laughs> yeah, no, that is great. Um, the other thing I got to bring up about this movie is that, like, even to this day, like, I I was watching this not too long ago. Um, I gotta say, like, for with the exception of some scenes, some of the special effects in this movie they still hold up, like, insanely well. Yeah, you know, I. When I watch this movie, I never get taken out, like, by any of the CGI. Like, and also, I mean, they use enough practical effects in this movie, they too, do. that I think, like, it, it it helps offset any kind of, like, dated CGI. Yeah, they were, yeah. I mean, they, there's points where you can tell, like, it's not actually a guy in a Spider-Man costume, like... Like an example of the practical effects actually is uh, I love it when Spider-Man swinging with Mary Jane. If you ever notice, it's actually a bust of Spider-Man that they just put Kirsten right. on. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. No, I I find that hilarious. <laughs> if you if you ever notice, it's a life it's a lifeless bust. You can tell there's no one even in it oh in the costume. Oh my god! Yeah, you're right. <laughs> he moves so stiff. Oh, you know, it's funny that you bring up the <laughs> practical effects, though, because that brings up another thing. You, I know for a fact you know this, but I love that in that cafeteria scene when he's, like, still kind of getting to know his powers, that whole moment when he used, when his spider sense goes off and he saves Mary Jane and he catches all the food, the fact that he did that in real life, that's <laughs> insane. <laughs> the fact that Toby had that much prep and and really like worked on nailing that to perfection. I have so much respect for everyone involved <laughs> that made that that happen and made it work. And that was actually Kirsten Dunst saying nice reflexes. Yeah. No, like legit <laughs> nice reflexes. The fact that he was able to do that, I, that was like what was it? Like 160 takes or something like that. It was like like Kubrick level like multiple takes that they had to do for that i feel like come on man toby wouldn't need 160 takes to to make that happen <laughs> right it was probably <laughs> toby toby could do that much sooner right, he, he was probably in his trailer <laughs> practicing that all night all day going like i've been i've been doing this months and months on end i'm i'm gonna do this right on the first take i mean you know to be fair though like to toby mcguire's credit he actually trained heavily for this movie like he like he trained really hard um i, I know he's a vegetarian so it's like he had so his diet was didn't need to get that strict but i know he did a lot of yoga and stuff like that there's a screen test that you can find um on the dvd where it's him shirtless i think it's supposed to be kind i think it's like an early version of that scene when mary jane is a is about is about to get jumped and you see the fight moves and stuff like that and you really see how much how much stunt work and fight work toby Maguire had to go through and it's like it's crazy like 
it's really cool. Like the commitment that he had to that role is is undeniable. So it's like when people go like, "Oh, he's the worst Spider-Man ever." I'm like, "Come on, guys. Like that's so unfair." Yeah. No, he's like I I know that that video you're talking about and he's clearly jacked. <laughs> you know, like he he put in the work to get fit for this. Like I mean, even when like he first like wakes up and he has he's, you know, he he realizes like, "Oh yeah, big change." <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god you're like yeah that's real <laughs> you know it's funny you bring up the big change thing because that makes me think of that whole moment of like the transformations that that's actually going to be something i got to bring up with sam raimi's direction is that he really know we were talking about how he likes to uh balance the camp with uh the with like the more serious stuff with that but there are moments in this movie and in the sequels too where he his horror roots really shine especially in that scene when like Willem Dafoe first becomes the Green Goblin. I remember that scene freaked me out when I was younger. I remember I jumped. I jumped because I didn't see that coming, that jump scare. Yeah. <laughs> I know the exact one you're talking about. And, oh, my God, and the white eyes with it, that just, it freaks you out. I always think about that part when he's uh, right after he throws Strom, after he's like, back to formula. And he just like leaps up and he's smiling yeah. and the lighting is just so perfectly done. It's almost, it's almost hammer-esque with how it looks. I'm just like, it's like, oh God. That image is forever burned in my brain because it also helps like Willem Dafoe's like physicality work so well for that scene. The big like smile on his face, like it's just so off-putting and unsettling, but it's so awesome. Right. <laughs> It kind of makes you go like, hey, you didn't need to put him in a Power Rangers outfit. You could have just had him be scary. Like, I know they actually, I know they actually had, they were going to have a comic accurate mask that actually like moved and like looked very close to how it looks in the comics. I've seen that. But then they decided against it because they were. I can understand like if they felt that it was too scary looking, but to be fair, you could just have easily painted Willem Dafoe's face green. <laughs> You could have, like, I don't think they even needed, like, a fake prosthetic, like, robotic mask. They could have just painted his face and just added a little bit of makeup. You'd have the Green Goblin. They try to have him emote with the mask by having his lenses flip up, which he does that a lot in this movie. Like, I didn't I didn't even notice it until I rewatched it. I was like, yeah. oh, my God, almost every scene he's got his eye, he's got his eye lenses lifted up. It's like he's going to get bugs in his face when he's flying. <laughs> You know, I won't actually, like, I thought about this before, and I've thought about, like, well, considering the more sort of campy direction they wanted to take the Green Goblin and Willem Dafoe's performance, do you think that the costume choice, the almost the Power Rangers getup, is more appropriate for the, the angle they took? Or do you think they could have made him just as campy, just as, like, with the creepy, like green face and everything or do you think that would have been a little too like maybe intense you see i don't know i mean like it's hard to tell because it's like we, we don't live in a reality where that happened but if if i had to but like yeah. to be fair i feel like what they have just the mask as it is you know the whole power rangers get up i think it works for the whole movie i mean and they have reasons for it like i like that it's like oh that's a tactical suit that they built at oscorp and stuff like that so I think in the context of the movie, it makes sense because literally everyone in these movies, like the villains, they don't look that comic accurate. So, I mean, the only one who really looks 
100% comic accurate in this movie is Spider-Man, which, by the way, that suit's incredible. Like, I love the raised webbing on it, and I love that look, like, those eyes and everything. It's such a good look. It's still my favorite cinematic costume for Spider-Man, just because, also, too, it, it's it's cool because it's a very bulky Spider-Man suit, whereas, like, you know, the Andrew Garfield is more, like, thin or slender, you know? Right. And then Tom Holland is... Uh, you know, you you know, but to- Toby Maguire, he's like the the Chad Spider Man, <laughs> <laughs> the Chad Spider Man. Oh my god! But yeah, I do love that outfit and that suit. Um, what else am I? Ch- There's got to be some other things. Like, man, I could talk about this movie for like hours on end, but Joey would hate me for that. <laughs> Danny Elfman's score. In, in this movie. Oh my god. Is so just enhances how good certain moments are. Like the final, final swing, swing. The opening credits, like those opening credits are iconic. Like it, they get me pumped every time. Like every time I pop that movie on DVD and the Columbia logo comes on and you just hear the violins coming in, I'm just like, oh, I'm ready. Like I even remember it kind of brings me back because I remember being a kid. Sitting in the theater, looking up at a dark screen, and just hearing that music start up. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm about to see my hero in real life. Spider-Man's real. <laughs> like, Danny Elfman out, like, figured out a way. Like, he made a memorable theme for Spider-Man that somehow really encapsulated Spider-Man, I think. When you hear it, you're like, that's Spider-Man's theme. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> like I mean, like... I. Oh, man, like the main theme, uh, Goblin's theme, uh, the responsibility suite that, um, like, the, mm-hmm. they're so well done. It's, I would say this one is probably his best out of the two that he did because I know he didn't do the third one, but we'll get onto that later. Uh, with that, it it's like every every musical piece in this movie like elevates the movie to the next level. Like honestly. If you didn't have the score, I'm not sure the movie would have worked as well. Like, I probably still would have loved it, and I guarantee everyone else still probably would have loved it, but his score just lifts this movie up so much more. It's It almost reminded me of, like, John Williams' uh, Superman theme, in a sense. I, I put it up there in terms of how iconic it is. Um, honestly, if they didn't have Nickelback and, and Chad Kroger, I'm not sure... <laughs> that the movie would have been the same. <laughs> and they say that a Chad Kroger really lifted this. I'm gonna stop singing because copyright. <laughs> like, man, I, I remember being a little kid and jamming to the music video. I love it when you see Chad Kr- Kroger just looking off into nothingness, just the sky, and you see Spider-Man just swinging around <laughs> like an angel or something. It's just so ridiculous, and I love it. <laughs> It screams 2002. It does. Speaking of 2002, we got to talk about just how huge this movie was when it came out. Because this movie was hyped to hell. Like, well, it was in development hell for years. Like, uh, David Fincher was going to do a Spider-Man movie at one point. James Cameron famously wrote a draft for a Spider-Man script. You can actually find it online. It's bonkers. Uh, I remember Canon, um, the guys who did... um, I'm trying to think what Canon did. Like, Canon did a bunch of huge uh, B horror movies at the day. They had the rights for a long period of time. Like, this movie was getting made for years. So when it finally came out, it was huge. It cost $139 million to make, which 
is not a lot. Like I think now, I think now that's probably like standard for a superhero movie. I think that's about like maybe close to two hundred million now. But it grossed eight hundred and twenty-one million dollars. To put that into perspective, today that would have been one. That would have been. One billion two hundred and fifty-one million dollars. <laughs> Damn! Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's crazy. So it was a huge movie. I think what's interesting when you look at the history of comic book movies, you can kind of see like Batman and Robin killed it for a couple years, then Blade comes in, and Blade is like moderately successful. I mean, a lot of people will try to say that, like, credit it for being like the first like true superhero movie of like the the era that sort of brought like you know made them popular but uh i would say if you didn't have the x-men movie i'm not sure that spider-man would have been as fat like fast-tracked as, as and and did as well as it as it as it ended up doing yeah if you didn't have that brian singer x-men yeah like I, I think that's the movie that really opened the floodgates and then spider-man just like just cracked that box open <laughs> hammered it in and then you ended up with Daredevil and all these <laughs> like wannabe like comic book movies, you know. I mean, to be fair though, when it comes to those kind of superhero movies, I still will unironically watch the first Fantastic Four movie. You know, that the first Fantastic Four, like real quick, I will say I actually like it. I mean, some of it might be nostalgia, but I also think it's pretty solid. I do too. Yeah, it has I the mean, kind of self-aware humor that the Raimi movies have. It does. I will say my only problem with that movie is that it. It, it's clearly ripping off Spider-Man, especially with Dr. Doom. Like I think about the scene in this Spider-Man movie when Willem Dafoe gets fired and he's like, well, you can't do this to me. I started this company. You know how much I sacrificed. And they literally do the exact same scene in fantastic four. <laughs> I was like, guys, come on. Oh my God. They do. Like, I was like, are you kidding me guys? <laughs> but, but, but you know, that's just a credit to how influential this movie was. Like, Everybody wanted to try to replicate what Sam Raimi did. Yeah, and Sam Raimi himself tried to replicate it, which we will get into in the next segment. So, stay tuned, web slingers. Actually blew out the microphone. And we're you got this. It. And 
And we are back! We are back this time talking about... Uh, oh, wait, it's still blew out. Ugh, Jesus, this is going to be up the hassle. Okay. And we are back. We are talking about the great, great trilogy. Uh, no, that's not right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Joey. You, you've got this, Alex. I'm sorry in advance. No worries. Um, <laughs> Take all the time you need, man. I really got to, like, I got to... Ch- I gotta channel my inner Joey with no, not Joey. I gotta channel my inner Richard with this. Sorry, and Richard. And we are back. <laughs> maybe I gotta. Maybe I gotta say. Nah, I shouldn't say it away from the microphone. And we are back. We just got done talking about the first installment of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, the first film to come out in two thousand two. Highly successful blockbuster. Really changed the game of the superhero genre. But, two years later, some would say Sam Raimi topped himself. In fact, I feel like most people would say Sam Raimi topped himself with the Oscar-winning Spider-Man 2. Now, this movie, a lot of people really cherish this movie as... Some people will say to this day, this is one of the best, if not the best superhero movie ever made. Like, I know people that will still say to this day that this is the best superhero movie ever made. Easily, it's still in the top ten. It's just so good. (laughs) Because I think Spider-Man 2, what Spider-Man 2 did so well was it it found a way to to progress Peter Parker's story and mature the character and the story as well, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. Like, I feel like I said this uh, with the first one. Now, again, when it comes to the first one, I'm biased because that's like the first superhero movie I ever saw in theaters. When I said that that one was the definitive Spider-Man story, I would say this one is as well because no other Spider-Man movie really captures the torment of the duality between Peter Parker and Spider-Man as well as Spider-Man 2, I feel. This one really knocks it out of a park about how much of a, I don't want to say burden, but how much of a stressful job being Spider-Man is for Peter Parker and how much of a blight it can really be on his personal life. Like, when that first movie, when this movie starts, like, he's already late for work because he just had to save a bunch of people. Like, he's hiding his mask because he was just Spider-Man. He's he's having trouble just delivering pizzas. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, stop, stop, stop! <laughs> You're late, man! Always late! I'm sorry, Mr. Aziz, there was a disturbance. <laughs> a disturbance, another disturbance, always a disturbance with you! <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, he's just, he's struggling delivering pizzas. Like, you really gotta, you gotta appreciate that first opening scene because it's like, I saw it and I was thinking about it and I was like, Peter Parker can't do something as mundane as delivering pizza. That sucks. <laughs> but, you know, also, it's such a great way to bring us back into, like, where Peter is after the first movie. Like, we we est- we quickly establish that what, what his job is. We see Mary Jane on the billboard. That's the first shot of the movie. So you know she's made it to some degree. But also then, it's, it's also such an exciting sequence watching him try to deliver the pizzas. <laughs> You're thrown right into the action. <laughs> right. I mean, the pizza scene was so iconic that they made it a, 
a playable thing you could do in the video game. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it birthed the amazing uh, line from Toby, pizza time. <laughs> And we also got the one dude that's like, oh he stole that guy's pizzas. <laughs> oh, my God. Apparently, that was supposed to be Stan Lee. There's a blooper where he goes, Spider-Man stole that guy's sneakers. Don't oh, sneakers. <laughs> you know, like, Stan Lee in this movie and the first one, I always loved how he's just a dude that saves a kid. <laughs> like, real quick, you, like, wouldn't even notice yeah, like, unless you know anything about Marvel, I mean, to, I mean, now Stan Lee's a household name, but it's like, I feel like at that time, like, if you didn't know who Stan Lee was, you'd be like, who's this old guy? Yeah. Who <laughs> just has, like, a quick frame a little bit. Oh, man. So, yeah, though, that first opening scene, it really does bring you back into the world of Spider-Man perfectly well, followed, followed up by another great scene with J.K. Simmons, <laughs> what better way to like get people invested in this movie than just bringing bringing in J.K. Simmons within the first like <laughs> five ten minutes? <laughs> like I love it that you're scene. Parker, hold up! You're fired. <laughs> crap! Crap! Mega crap! <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Stinks. Bobby, here's a page one. Mass menace terrorizes town. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> this whole se- God, these whole segment, this whole episode is just going to be us quoting the movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, like but, uh, we're almost just like you might as well just watch the movies. <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, viewers. When you're done listening to this episode, watch these movies again. They're incredible. At least, <laughs> at least these first two. We'll we'll get into the le- we'll get into the next one in a bit. But uh, but yeah, no two. It it just does a, such a great job at like showing how much balancing the life between Peter and Spider Man is so hard for him. So much so that he starts to lose his powers. Well, what I love about Spider Man two is I feel like there's a lot of thematic purpose in it. Like, there, there feels like a, there's a, a reason for everything that's being shown and everything Peter's going through. And I, I, in my opinion, the first Spider-Man movie is really about, like, responsibility, like Peter learning responsibility. But then the second one, I think, is, is a story about, like, choices. Like, the choices Peter makes is, is really what drives the story. And I think that's such an interesting thing. Like, you know, absolutely. Peter either chooses to be Peter, and you know, there's no Spider-Man, or he play, or he chooses to go out and be Spider-Man, and he's sacrificing, you know, his love life with Mary Jane and friendship with Harry. It's a really interesting, like, and, and it's funny because like it doesn't sound like like it's that much of a revolutionary concept to do that or anything, but. In the comic book movie genre, I feel like at the time when Spider-Man 2 came out, that was a surprisingly very mature way to take the story, you know? And I think that's what, like, pleasantly surprised people. Yeah, like, I mean, like, I, I can't really think of a lot of superhero movies, at least before this one, that really dived into how how much the duality can really have on someone. Because it's like, you think about, like, like, like say the Keaton Batman movie is like, 
those ones, it's like the duality of Bruce Wayne and Batman because they're almost like two completely separate individuals. There's not really so much of a blight between like Batman. Batman doesn't really have as much of a strong effect on his Bruce Wayne life. You know what I mean? Whereas with this one, literally anything he does as Spider-Man has an effect on his life as Peter Parker. (laughs) And it's almost like a whole domino effect in that sense. And I think, and it really does, it really is a movie about choice and like how, what you do is, uh, how am I trying to say this? Uh, it really is a movie about choice and how what you do is... I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> uh, give me a second. Let me collect my thoughts here. You're good. Again, sorry, Joe. Sorry, Joe, in advance. <laughs> what what yeah. you do yeah, I, uh, has an effect on other people. Yeah, really what you do has an effect on others and yourself because we even see that in this... because. His life as Spider-Man, after that first movie, what he did as Spider-Man just completely changed his life. Because we didn't talk about this. At the end of the first movie, Green Goblin's dead. And Harry thinks Spider-Man did it. And because of that, Harry hates Spider-Man's guts. And on top of that, has a bit of a rocky relationship with Peter Parker. Because Peter Parker is his go-to photographer. And he's just like... If you knew who he was, would you tell me? This man killed my father, Peter. And I'm just... I look at that and I'm like... I mean... He's not unjustified? I mean, like... I mean, I know he didn't kill him. Like... Again, I know Peter didn't kill the Green Goblin. But... When you look at the context of the scene... You can't help but not feel for Harry. You, you feel for Harry because there's so many questions he still has... But also, if Peter really is his friend, you would think Peter could figure out a way to, like, you know, help Harry out here and, like, get, like, yeah. you know, the information on how to track Spider-Man and find out his identity and everything. Honestly, I would say this when it comes to Harry. This is James Franco's best performance as Harry Osborn, I feel like. This is his best one. Because yeah. I always think about that one scene at the planetarium when he gets drunk and he confronts Peter, I'm like, it's such a sad, sad scene. And it's... He sells that so, so well. Yeah, I mean, like, sucks that James Franklin just has to be a garbage human being, but... (laughs) (laughs) But, like, my God, like, Harry in this movie, he has a lot to do, and you really feel for him and stuff like that. And, And it sucks because it's like you could tell Peter just wants to have a normal life. He just wants to have everything go back to normal, but it feels like he can't do that if he stays Spider-Man, and that leads him to his huge choice in this movie. He quits being Spider-Man. Right after he quits being Spider-Man, and they have that amazing shot of the costume in the trash can from the, the comics, which I always loved oh, that. so, so good. I love how they immediately segue into a very Sam Raimi-esque segment where it's raindrops keep falling on my head. It's just Peter just, like, having the best day of his life. (laughs) It's such a fun sequence, but I love it, too, that, like, you're seeing Peter... Like, you see Peter being happy, and you feel happy because you feel happy for him. But then, like, every once in a while, like, 
in the middle of all the like nice things going on for Peter, you'll see like a scene where Peter looks over and sees like some thugs beating up somebody. And you're reminded, oh yeah, this is the problem with Peter not, with Peter ha- living his own life, you know? And it's like Peter for a second stops and thinks like, oh, should I go over and, and stop them? But then he just eats a hot dog or whatever. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, I guess I'll go about my day. <laughs> I will say this though, that whole level, the whole element of of like what you were saying, like how his choices are like a domino effect in this movie, like it it real it bleeds into like one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and it's when he saves the kid without his powers in the fire. Oh yeah, very much mirroring the scene in the first movie. That is probably hands down my favorite scene in this movie. It's definitely up there, and and you know what? I never forgot whenever that scene plays, and like it's great seeing Peter run in there just as Peter to save the kid. But it always sticks with me that after Peter rescues the little kid, you hear the firefighters talking. And one of them says, oh, there's still somebody who, who died in the fire. And if Peter had maybe shown up a little sooner, he could have saved them. And, and they zoom in on Peter's face. Or if he face. was Spider-Man. Yeah. And, and they zoom in on Peter's face, kind of like as if he heard that and he realized, like, oh, crap, he's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Which, oh, we didn't talk about this. This is completely off topic, but we didn't talk about this. Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. Arguably the best villain in the trilogy. Arguably. I would say he's probably the best written out of he's all He's the of best them. written. I agree with that. Yeah. Maybe not the best performed, because I think that has to go to Willem Dafoe. Uh, it has to. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, I mean, that being said, though, Alfred Molina, he knocks it out of the park. He's a fantastic actor in general, and I'm, I'm so glad he's coming back in No Way Home. But, like... Every scene in this movie, like Willem Dafoe, he is chewing the scenery. He, it's a much more tame and dramatic performance in comparison to the last movie. Yeah. But they really, make, they really make you feel for him because, like, you, you meet him and you, he has his flaw, like he has in the comics, that he's in over his head. Like, that's the thing about Doc Ock that I love that they bring it in, that they brought into this movie, is that Doc Ock, he has this ego to him that he feels like he's so smart he can't make miscalculations and stuff like that but then he makes a miscalculation costs him his livelihood he has tentacles fused to the bat to to his spine which have ai for some reason and <laughs> if you think about doc ock too much it starts there like, for instance, like, when Spider-Man and Doc Ock are fighting, like, if you think about it, when he's punching Otto in the face, shouldn't he be, like, shouldn't Otto's face be mush? Like, it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> but It's a comic book movie. <laughs> exactly. Like, we just go with it because we love it anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. But it's like, but you, but you see, like, the consequences of that choice. And his wife dies. Yes. And... I really like that you get to see his relationship with Rosie in the very beginning. You see how they're a very loving couple. Because Rosie's not a character in the comics. No. They, they added her into the movie uh, as just kind of be like an emotional uh, fuel for the character. Which, such a great addition because, like I said, like I said, Alfred Molina, I almost said Willem Dafoe. <laughs> Alfred Molina, just, he sells it. Like, I think about that scene when he when he goes to the when he goes to the port 
like the abandoned port and he's just like, my Rosie's dead. My dream is dead. And I'm just, that whole scene where he's just talking to himself and I'm just like, he's got nothing to work with. He's just acting to himself. That's something Sam Raimi really loved doing in those first couple movies was like having the villain have like his, his own, like, you know, uh, monologue mo- like with himself. Yeah. I mean, in the last movie, I mean, Willem Dafoe straight up talked to himself <laughs> in the mirror. Yes. But, but in this one, it's like he has like in this one, they imply that the tentacles are talking to him in his head. Like the AI is speaking to him and you don't hear what the tentacles are saying. I mean, it's these tentacles are creepy, by the way, because I love they, that they're they real. This, like, like they're practical. Yeah, they're practical. So it, it's so fun to like see them moving, and you realize, oh, someone's actually moving that. <laughs> Not only that, like even though they don't speak to him per se, the sound effects for it, the sound mixing for it, it's so creepy, so creepy. and so so well done. That scene, that. First scene when he officially becomes Doc Ock and he kills all the doctors. That is such a Sam Raimi directed scene, man. <laughs> that movie, that freaked me out when I was younger. I was like, am I watching Passion of the Christ? What is this, a snuff film? <laughs> well, you know, something too, though, that I, that I love is the way Sam Raimi understands that every character is is not necessarily a good or bad person. Everyone in these movies are just extremely flawed. And so something I love is that Otto is in it over his head, but a lot of what is going on with him, a lot of why he does what he does is because the tentacles are influencing him. And it doesn't help that, you know, he just lost his wife and his project failed. Right. But, you know, like the tentacles are only enhancing you know, like, the negative in him. And so, like, you understand, like, yeah, like, what Otto's doing isn't right, but you understand, like, oh, well, he is going through a really, like, tragic time, and the tentacles are kind of controlling him, in a sense. And I, and I love that about what Raimi yeah. gets with these characters, you know? None of them are bad. Yeah. They're just flawed. Like, people talk to the high heavens about, like, Thanos and stuff like that, about, like, how they had, like, a point and stuff like that. But look no further than Doc Ock, because I feel like that is, uh, in terms of comic book movies, he's probably, like, one of, if not the definitive sympathetic villain, I feel like. I agree. And, yeah. And got, like, every scene with him is awesome. The special effects in this are crazy. Oscar winnings, by the way. Dude, like the train sequence, easily oh, like so my favorite action scene in a comic book movie today, to date. Dude, it's so it's so good. Like it's so well done, and I really love. And uh, oh yeah, I guess I gotta bring this up. So in that scene, the music is so well done, but surprisingly, not all of it is Danny Elfman. I didn't know that. Yeah, so during the production of this movie, Danny Elfman and Sam Raimi, they got into a bit of a, they got into a bit of creative, uh, creative um, backlash between each other because Sam Raimi wanted him to like mimic that of like Hellraiser and stuff like that. And Danny Elfman was like, I don't do that. That's not my style. So what, so eventually um, he quit and uh, 
he brought in Christopher Young, who would eventually go on to do Spider-Man 3. And that entire score of that train fight up to, you know, when Peter passes out in the, in the responsibility theme plays, that's all Christopher Young. Whitey, my life has been a lie. Whenever I listen to that score and it says Danny Elfman, I've been lied to. I've been bamboozled. <laughs> I always credited. I've always credited Danny Elfman for that amazing score. And wow, it was Christopher Young. Holy crap! Like we'll talk about it later. Yeah, like, but you wouldn't. No- I do love his work on Spider Man Three, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah, we will get into that later. But uh, but yeah, no, that train sequence is incredible. I love. Like the first movie, I love that that scene shows the unity of New York with Spider-Man. Like how they he saved their life. He's unmasked through most of it. Yeah. Again, like one of the things I love, and, and to me, like, because choice is such a central theme in this movie, like, this is really the big moment where Spider-Man is back. And, 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 and Peter now has the chance, the, now has the opportunity to really, like, you know, show he's back. And on the train, like, he has the choice. Like, he could easily just not even intervene here. But he's, like, shooting webs, making sure people are safe. Like, <laughs> it's so fun when he's, like, shooting the webs, like, at the civilians as they're flying. And, <laughs> and he- Right? <laughs> like, it's so well done. It's such a well-done action scene. And it's, like, it's crazy because it's, like, I, I forget... I keep forgetting this. He gets flung off of that train like a quarter of the way through the fight and he has to web sling back. And yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. He like <laughs> he keeps getting thrown off the train and he keeps coming back. And after the whole movie, he kept running away from stuff. And I'm just like, yes. <laughs> and going back to what I was saying about how he's unmasked through most of that train fight, I love that at the end, after he saves them and they think he's dead and... He wakes up and the kids, which by the way, you already know this, those are Tobey Maguire's uh, um, step stepbrothers? Yeah, they're his stepbrothers. Yeah, I want to say that. Actually, that's so funny because yeah, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> so you just reminded me. Yeah, so when those, when, uh, th- when those kids come in and bring the mask and they're like, we won't tell anybody. I'm like, that, that's another moment in, that mo- in, that, in these movies where I'm just like, yeah, I love that New York City is a character in this movie. Which, by the way, we gotta talk about the supporting characters in this movie because there's a lot. <laughs> we haven't even started talking about them. <laughs> Rent? <laughs> Dude, Mr. Ditkovich. Oh, by the way, Ursula's the real woman in Peter's life. Like, Ursula's who he should have gotten with. Let's be real here. Ursula was always there for him <laughs> throughout... Two and three, man. Just, just saying hi, making him milk and cookies. Yeah. Just saying hi, making milk and cookies. Like, rooting for his relationship with Mary yeah. Jane. Just big ball of wholesome energy. Yes. Uh, Mr. Dickov- and Mr. Dickovich is hilarious. Which, by the way, you know that's a reference to Steve Ditko, right? Yeah. Another supporting character I feel like I have to bring up is uh, John Jameson. Yeah, you know, I remember actually when this movie came out. And fans would speculate, oh, he's going to be the villain in the next one because he's Man-Wolf. <laughs> Do you remember <laughs> I didn't that even at know all? I that that was a thing. I mean, like, 
No, I you see, I didn't. I didn't really get into internet culture as terms of like hyping up superhero movies until three, and I'm gonna get into that. Oh yeah. Um, I, I mean, I knew John Jameson became Man Wolf, but I didn't really put two and two together that Man Wolf was gonna be like would be a villain and stuff like that. But I will say this: like John Jameson, it's like he kind of like Harry in the last movie. He feels like he's just there to be kind of a love triangle character but to be fair though when you think about it through mary jane's perspective you can kind of understand why she's not with peter i understand her perspective and also the difference between john jameson and harry i think is that with john jameson because he's so accomplished and he's an astronaut which they keep hammering into peter like he's the astronaut like the thing is john jameson seems like an actually pretty likable dude and so, like, you get the sense that he's not a bad guy. And I, I always thought that was interesting. So, like, when Mary Jane leaves him, I really feel for him. Because even, like, they show the scene where, like, where her and, uh, and him are on the couch and she a- he asks him, or he asks Mary Jane, like, oh, are you going to invite your friend Peter Parker? And he has no, like, ill will towards Peter, seemingly, like. He just seems like a, a, a stand-up guy, really. So, like, in that last hey, shot... He seems like a normal dude. He seems like a normal... That's what it is. Like, Harry is not exactly a normal guy. John Jameson is a normal guy. <laughs> and I always just felt for him, like, in that last yeah. shot in the movie <laughs> when he realizes that she just stood him up. I'm like, you see, this is another reason I can see people saying Mary Jane is a bit polarizing. <laughs> she didn't need to do that. <laughs> Come that's on. That's something I had to bring up, because... That's something I gotta bring up. I mean, it gets way worse in the next one, but like, but yeah. in this one, it's there is a little bit of an aspect where it just like it feels like it's like I don't understand kind of your thought process, Mary Jane. I do love that one scene though, where where Mary Jane asks John to kiss and they're upside down. Like, I do like that. Yeah. Another thing I love in this movie is Aunt May and Peter's relationship. And I love it when Peter decides to tell Aunt May about how he feels responsible for Uncle Ben's death. And the, the, the look on her face when he tells her and how, he just, and how she just gets up from the table and walks upstairs. <laughs> oh, God, it's such a powerful scene. And you got to think about it. This is the closest he ever gets outside of Mary Jane and Harry to telling someone that he's Spider-Man. Yeah, that's true. So it's like, when you when you really think about it on that context, you're just like, oh my god. And I also love that there's no music that plays in that scene. Yeah, that was a really smart choice. It just, it just feel, you like feel the weight. just let you sit in the moment. But also, too, like, up to that point, like, the way Rosemary Harris plays Aunt May... She's very, like, she's always there for Peter, and you really feel, like, that bond. So there's even a hint that, oh, maybe she's thinking, you know, badly of Peter. It it really, like, it it does mess with you. Yeah. (laughs) It messes with your head a little bit. (laughs) It does mess with your head a little bit, but, I mean, we do have that great scene later on where... um, Oh, yeah, I guess we got to talk about that. Like, I mean, she suffers through a lot of financial struggles in this movie, with, and she loses the house, and there's that scene when she's moving out, and she forgives Peter, and I'm like, 
You see, this is why Aunt May will always be one of the best like mom figures in comics ever. Dude, the writing in that scene is so it's just so like beautiful. It always gets me. Like sometimes I won't lie, I will look up that scene on YouTube <laughs> cuz it gives me goosebumps. <laughs> no, it's such a, It's such it's such well it's so well done just like I believe there's a hero in all of us. Keeps us honest, gives us strength, makes us noble, even if sometimes we have to give up the things we want the most. Oh my god. Remember when that played? <laughs> Mikey, how in did the I get trailer? how did I get goosebumps just from you saying <laughs> as a British woman? <laughs> yes. Like I said, this whole episode is just gonna be us quoting these movies. <laughs> but yes, I do remember that line in the trailer. And I, I, I always thought that it was such a cool way to like you know, I, I always thought it was cool to put that in the trailer. It sets the tone for the movie very well, I think. Um, but also yeah. too, another I thing, Waiki, I love in that scene when she gives that speech is I love it how they, they make a point of saying like this kid, Henry is asking where's Spider-Man cause kids look up to Spider-Man and that's a very important thing that like maybe yeah. other superhero movies would not point out or take the time to like, you know, acknowledge, but like, yeah. I think that's another big thing that makes yeah. Peter realize is like, oh, like there's kids that actually really like are wondering, where is he? <laughs> yeah, no, it is very important to have that element of like what kids think of Spider-Man because kids are going to go see this movie. It reminds me of like something Joey was saying in an earlier episode about that scene in uh, in Captain America Winter Soldier where that one kid sees Cap yes. and he goes like, shh. I like, love that. It, it 100% makes me think of that. Like... And you need that for these kind of movies. Like, I'll, I know a lot of people kind of going off of what I was saying about, like, how movies can go one of two ways when it comes to, like, tone. Some people will say, like, oh, you got to be, like, stone cold serious all the time. Comic books, they're not all for kids. I'm like, guys, come on. These, ga- these characters are icons. Kids are going to love them. One other thing that I love about that scene is after Aunt May gives the speech, you know, the whole movie, Peter is just, like, getting dragged and just like, you you know, Peter's just having a rough time the whole movie. But after Aunt May gives that speech, there's just a quick shot of Peter's face. And he just looks so, like, confident and determined with this big smile on his face. Like, he finally gets it. <laughs> like, he finally understands. <laughs> it's a really quick scene, but you know. I know, know. what you're going to say. <laughs> it's just a, like a no, quick I shot. that it- <laughs> Of Toby just with this really derpy, happy face, and I love it. (laughs) I just love that it leads to him jumping off a building thinking he could leap buildings again to him falling on a Ford Focus. (laughs) (laughs) My back! (laughs) I love it that he's like, I'm back! My back! (laughs) It's so good. So clearly he didn't lose all of his powers because... That fall would have killed him. <laughs> Dude, by the way, I love that the bat, the my back scene is also kind of a reference to how Toby almost wasn't going to be in Spider-Man 2 because <laughs> of back issues. Right? I keep forgetting that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I got to talk about that. Yeah. So there was a period of time uh, where um, to- Toby McGuire suffered a horrific back injury and he was almost not willing to do... Um, Spider-Man 2, so 
they were thinking of bringing the role to a good friend of his who would eventually wind up in a Spider-Man movie, Mr. Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Ironically, Jake Gyllenhaal was dating Kirsten Dunst at the time, too, which I always thought was funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> God, wouldn't that have been something? I mean, I don't know if it would have worked. I mean, I would have... I want to see what that would be like because Jake Gyllenhaal's a phenomenal actor, and I loved him as Mysterio and... Uh, 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 far from home. So I'm so seeing him as Spider Man would have been interesting. But at the same time, these movies are so tight with their cast that it's like it probably would have taken me out of it. I'm almost thinking like because historically we see that most recastings work. You know, change is a little weird at first, but I could see because we were so young when when Spider Man Two came out, I could see us transitioning to being fine with him. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like by the time Spider-Man three would have happened, it's like, well, he would have had more appearances than Toby anyway. So, <laughs> but it's interesting to think. Yeah. And also like this movie is just so well made that I feel like people would have forgave it just because it's such a well-made movie. And ironically, I could see people being like, well, Jake Gyllenhaal had the better movie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! I can imagine that. that discourse, right? <laughs> and then by the time three comes around, everyone's just like, Ugh. "Oh man!" So I'm trying to think of some other things we got to talk about with uh, two. I guess one thing we got to talk about before we bring before we bring go into the next one is that some big things happen in the end of this one, and one of those is that Harry finds out Peter is Spider Man. Yeah, that is a very... Dude, the look on James Franco's face sells it so well. Again, it's his best performance easily. Right. It's the This is the one movie of the three where I felt like he was acting. <laughs> like, genuinely trying. <laughs> yeah. I think about that part that leads up later when he's sitting alone. He's looking at the knife like, I almost killed my best friend. And then you hear... <laughs> And Willem Dafoe is back, and you're just like, where is this going to lead? And then he finds the lair and finds out that his dad was the Green Goblin. And just like... When I saw that in theaters, I was like, what? With, with the score playing and everything. It was so good. And just like, it's such a... Uh, it, it, also, it all escalates so quickly. And I'm just trying to put my, my... Like, trying to think like, damn, what is Harry's mindset like? Right now, processing all of this, <laughs> like I mean, geez. I mean, clearly he was fine enough to go to. I mean, clearly he was fine enough to go to Mary Jane's <laughs> wedding the next day. Dude, I won't <laughs> lie. I've always been jarred by that. <laughs> I just, right? I've always just found that weird, really weird. Like he just went through a lot, and he seems so well put together and fine at that wedding. <laughs> I always yeah. just love that. We we touched on how Harry feels about, you know, Peter killing Norman, you know, at least he thinks or suspects that. It does Peter doesn't exactly help his case when Harry unmasks him and he doesn't exactly try to resolve anything. He's just like, "Where is she? Where's Mary Jane?" <laughs> Well, I mean, to be fair, though, Doc Ock is about to, like, literally destroy New York City, <laughs> so... No, I mean, from Peter's perspective, it's understandable as well. 
but my god, that last that last fight at that pier is so well done. You, I mean, like the first the end fight in the first movie. Like, you think about how raw and versatile that was, which, by the way, I forgot to bring this up when we were talking about the first one. Do you know that in those moments in the first movie when Peter when Peter's getting punched by Green Goblin and he's, his spit is spewing out, that was actually supposed to be blood, but they had to make it look like spit because they got an R rating. Oh, that's interesting. But you know what? I like that, too, though. That works as well. Yeah, we should have touched on that fight because it is a very... It's hard to watch. Because Peter's getting his butt kicked. <laughs> yeah, but then you compare it with, but then you compare it with this one, and Peter, he doesn't get beat up as much in this movie. But there's, I would say, there's a much more heavier stakes though, because like just that giant sun magnet just sucking up New York. You're just like, oh my god, anyone's gonna get crushed at any moment. <laughs> you know something I love about the the fight at the pier. Is in Spider-Man 2, Peter beats Otto by trying to get through to him by talking, you know? And then Otto get, you know... Yeah. I, I love that. He tries to reason with him as opposed to just yeah. throwing, you know, punches at him. <laughs> right. And again, it's one of those things because, again... The lesson of this, sometimes we have to go steady and give up the thing we want the most, even our dreams, to do what's right. And I love that 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 that's what brings Doc Ock back, brings Octavius back to sanity, and he gets control of the arms again. It's such a well-done redemption. I have no idea how they're going to transition from that with him being a villain in No Way Home. I mean, maybe they'll have it be like the the tentacles are just controlling him. I think that's what the explanation is actually going to be, but... My guess is either the tentacles regain control over him or they'll have some kind of explanation that because of like time travel and everything maybe they'll take maybe the point where Otto's taken in Spider-Man 2 will be like right at that moment before he he uh, changes up I could see that too just yeah. a thought and again we don't know the movie hasn't come out yet yes another thing with that scene is Mary Jane finds out that Peter is Spider-Man which she didn't know. Like there is, there was that moment at the end of the first movie where, after she kisses Peter, she's just like, "Wait a minute," and kind of looks back. So there was always that little bit of hinting of like that she knew that he was Spider-Man, but now she definitively knows. And I do, and it leads to just a great scene with them both on the web, which is such a great scene. Even though I look at that, and because I read James Cameron's scriptment, I can't help but think of that. <laughs> Yeah, you if you know. read the script, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it is nice after everything that happens in the first couple movies that Mary Jane finally knows. It 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 does almost take a weight off of us and Peter <laughs> seeing that. Yeah, and it leads to such a great conclusion because yeah, she does ditch John at the altar, which is <laughs> admittedly a really shitty move, but. The fact that she's like, I don't care if I'm going to be in danger. I want to face the danger with you. I'm like, that's awesome. That is such a great ending. And that final swing, I love yep. that they end the movie uh, on the 
frame, the end, the last frame is Mary Jane. Like, yeah. the beginning of the movie is Mary Jane, and the end of the movie is Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, and another thing that I can't remember where I heard this from, I don't know if it was just some sort of analysis, or if it actually was a quote from, like, Sam Raimi or Kirsten Dunst, but I always liked how that last shot of her watching Peter swing off, you can see on her face a little bit of, like, uncertainty, about what the future is gonna be like now yeah. that she just committed to this, but I like that because again, it, it really shows like she's human. She has her own needs, which come up in Spider Man Three. <laughs> yeah, which I think this is probably a good time to segue into that one. So Spider Man Two comes out, huge success. Everyone loves it, and uh, so then we get into the production of Three now. Three, I gotta bring this up. Three was the first superhero movie I was actively online, on the internet, on my computer, getting ready to watch. I was so excited for this movie. When that first trailer dropped and you saw the symbiote, I was like, Mm -hmm. they're doing the black suit. Yes, 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 yes. I was... I was on board. Dude, I was the same. This was the first I was actively watching out for news and updates online. And I'll never forget when the first teaser poster dropped and it was Spider-Man on the bell tower with the black suit. That was the moment everyone realized, oh my God, we're getting the symbiote. (laughs) Like that was so cool because up to that point, I was watching YouTube videos of, of fan trailers and because I was so young and impressionable, I didn't realize I was watching fan trailers. <laughs> so I was like, oh, so yeah, this I is the, the real. <laughs> so when the actual trailer dropped, I was like, oh, so this is the real thing. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But like, I remember I was getting so hyped for this movie, but there were things I was getting hyped of that should have made me nervous in hindsight. Yeah. One of that is being the fact that this movie has a lot of villains. Um, so. They have to, one, they have to continue off what they did with uh, Harry's story. So he becomes the new goblin. I hate that name. <laughs> they should have just, just made him. him Green goblin. Yeah, or Hobgoblin. <laughs> or Hobgoblin. Like, they even, they even have a silver mask that they could have used. That is what makes it, that's like what it feels like a kick in the balls, you know? <laughs> it's like they literally show, show that there. And I'm like, that's what he should have just worn. Like, that was his mask. And yeah. you just had it sitting there. Like... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, but I remember I, I heard that Green Gal was going to be in it, and I was like, oh, they're doing that. Okay, well, I hope they do it well. And then I found out Sandman was going to be another villain, and I had no idea what they were going to do with Sandman. So I was kind of – I was excited just because it's cool seeing Sandman on screen, which, by the way, outside of Spider-Man, he's probably the most comic-accurate-looking uh, character in this movie too. It's kind of – was Hayden Church. Well, he looks, he looks like Flint Marco, but also it's hard to mess up Sandman's costume. It's just a green striped shirt. Like, <laughs> how do you mess it up? <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean, but it's Sony and it's Hollywood. And yeah. this was kind of at a period where they liked to change things just to change things. So, and then this is the other thing we got to talk about with the villain. Now, they kept this a secret for a long time. So even though the Black Suit Saga was happening, we had no idea about whether or not Venom was going to be in it because Venom is strongly tied to the symbiote. So 
We didn't know if this was just going to be the Black Suit Saga and they just weren't going to bring in Venom. Were they going to bring in Venom in the next movie? I know a lot of people are thinking that, like, he was going to be set up for the next movie. But then I remember that leaked, uh, I think it was like a leaked Comic-Con trailer came out. And then you saw test footage of Venom. I remember. And you're like, so Venom is in the movie. Dude, and then when they show, okay, when they show Venom in that leaked, dude, Venom's design in the Comic-Con trailer is far better looking, in my opinion, than how he ends up looking in the movie. That's what he yeah, should have looked I mean, like. I, love his, <laughs> I mean, I love his look in this movie. Like, I, I still think he's too tiny, but it's like, for what it is for the Sam Raimi universe, I think it works. Like, I love the webbing. Like, I love how it looks more, like, just, like, cobwebbed and stuff like that. And I love that it has the same uh, honeycomb pattern and stuff like that. And I love that Venom has, like, the sharp teeth and stuff like that. I hate that Venom doesn't say we. Like, he doesn't refer to himself as we. Well, you know, I mean, I I know you know this, but Sam Raimi, one of the reasons Spider-Man 3's production is infamous is that Sam Raimi actually did not like Venom. He didn't want to use Venom. No. In fact, Sam Raimi's original idea was he wanted Sandman and the Vulture, played by Ben Kingsley. Yeah. And but then Javier Arad like stepped in and was like, no, no, no. The fans they want uh, they want Venom. You need to put Venom in. <laughs> he he looked at the toy sales and he's like, look, we don't sell Vulture toys as much as we do Venom toys. We need Venom in the movie. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I would rather see Venom myself. But if it if it meant sacrificing Raimi's vision and also getting. Whatever Sam Raimi's version of Venom was, which wasn't really accurate <laughs> because he didn't really understand what he was adapting. Like, I, I would much rather not have yeah. had Venom. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, and it's like, yeah, so it's like the villains in this movie, it's like, that's like one of the other things. That's one of the big things about this movie is that there's way too much going on in this movie. Way too many storylines going on at once. And it almost makes me feel like, this movie is like, this isn't that long. It's only like two hours and 13 minutes. And I was like, this should have been like at least a half hour to an hour longer. I think what hurts it too is that like, there are examples of, of movies where they can balance multiple villains. But I just think that for whatever reason, like... Think about it. Sandman and Venom and Harry all, like, require very different storylines that you can't really tangentially put together naturally. Like, like I love Sandman and his, the storyline with his daughter. That's great. I like the idea Sam Raimi had to make Eddie Brock like an, e like a, an evil mirror of Peter Parker. It's different from the comics. You know, like, the way... It's so different from the comics. It yeah. Sorry, go ahead. We jumped on each other. We'll You're just, good, bro. I would say start over. Yeah, no, but, you know, another thing I appreciate about Sam Raimi's vision is he, because he didn't really like Venom or understand Venom, he interpreted, he reinterpreted Eddie Brock as like an evil mirror of Peter Parker. Or like, what if Peter Parker lacked character? <laughs> And that's Eddie Brock in this movie. Yeah. And and it and it helps that they cast Topher Which Grace, I, who is almost like I, a, a, an unlikable Tobey Maguire. <laughs> I mean, he's literally just 
I mean, oh my god. Like, I will admit, like, in terms of that aspect of what he was going for, like, if he's trying to be, like, like dark Peter Parker, the casting of Tobey Maguire, almost said Tobey Maguire, the casting <laughs> of Topher Grace, it works perfectly fine. But it's just, yeah, it's the purest in me that makes me just go, like, that's not Eddie Brock. That's not what I see Eddie Brock as. Oh, I guess in this one he's Eddie Brock Jr. like he is in the Ultimate Comics. Yeah, th- that's more like, that's actually how a lot of fans who were just kind of like in denial were trying to sort of like accept it was like, well, it's like the Ultimate Comics, so I guess I guess there's that basis. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, but in the Ultimate Comics, though, Eddie is way worse, though. Like, he's mu- he's closer to how Eddie is in the comic book, like the mainline comic books, but he also does stuff in those comics that he would never get away with doing in these movies, which I'm not going to get into that. But um, <laughs> the stuff they have with, like, Eddie Brock and, like, why he hates Spider-Man, it's, like, it's not inherently bad. Like, the reasons he hates Peter is fine. Like, you know, he, like, makes him lose his job at the Daily Bugle. He's dating Gwen Stacy, and then he just kind of throws a wrench in that. You know, that's also a good thing. Apparently there was more scenes between Gwen and Eddie like after that whole thing that happened at the Daily Bugle, it's actually in the novelization. And I had the I don't know novel. If they shot the scenes when I was younger. I had the novel. Did you ever own it? I owned it. I never read it. I read it when I was in like high school. I think it was like freshman. No, no, no. I would have had to. No, it was high school because years later I, I finally read the novelization. And there's so many like cool bits and pieces in there that aren't in the movie. Like, Eddie as Venom has the memories of Peter, which, you know, we know that. But there's a scene where he actually breaks into Mary Jane's apartment. And you actually see Eddie just kind of creeping around, like, looking at, like, pictures of Mary Jane and stuff. And it's just so creepy, man. (laughs) That would have actually been pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of emphasizing my point that either... This should have been longer or it should have been split up into two movies. Like, I know that was something Sam Raimi was even negotiating with Sony. Like, can we split this up? Can we make it a two-parter? And then Avi Arad and, surprisingly, you know Kevin Feige was working heavily on this movie? I never really thought about it, but I'm not surprised. Because, yeah, it makes sense. Well, if you go back and you watch the bonus features of the DVD... I just love that you're switching like into a much more sensual position. You can't see this audience, but he's like leaning on his side right now. It, it almost looks like I'm Kate Winslet in a Titanic, you know? <laughs> right. uh, let me let me get my sketch pad. <laughs> but but um, Kevin Feige, um, if you watch those bonus features, he's giving interviews talking about it because he's an executive producer on this movie. In fact, this is the first movie where Marvel Studios is credited. Like, in, in the first two movies, it's Marvel Enterprises and uh, Laura... I forget her last Ziskin. name. I, I Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, really sh- I really should know that because she is, like, a pivotal, like, driving force for these movies. But um, I really think that if she wasn't there in the first two Spider-Man movies and Avi Arid had more control, who knows how the first two movies would have turned out, man. <laughs> It's actually funny you bring that up because after she died, Avi Arad took far more control of the second Amazing Spider-Man, and we saw how that went. <laughs> yep, that's actually why I, I said that, because I feel like she kind of reined him in a little bit. Yeah. 
and oh man, but yeah, like this is the first movie that's credited as Marvel Studios. Like, go if you go back and watch it, if you look at the opening credits, it'll say Marvel Studios instead of Marvel Enterprises. And this came out a year before Iron Man. Dude, that really just puts in in perspective like how dated both Spider-Man 3 and Iron Man are. <laughs> and it also kind of messes with your head when you think about like Spider-Man 2 was only 4 years before Iron Man. That's so insane <laughs> It kind of messes like it's so weird to think the MCU existed yeah. only 4 years later. <laughs> Another thing about Spider-Man Three that I feel like we got to bring up is we were now we've said this multiple times about how Mary Jane gets a little controversial. This one, I insufferable. I can't handle her. I, I'm sorry. I, so, I, she's trying. Like I, I, Kirsten Dunst is trying her hardest, and luckily she doesn't get kidnapped a lot in this movie. She only gets kidnapped once, actually. Imagine having to be like, "Wow, this person only gets kidnapped once." In this movie, <laughs> that's how often they get kidnapped. <laughs> yeah, but um, but just like I don't know, it's like, and I get where she's coming from. Like her whole like dynamic, her whole story of like her getting fired and you know struggling to be an actress and a singer. It's like, and you really see her decline into being a, a singing waitress. Like it's tragic, and I really relate to it. But, uh, I don't know, just, like, the things that she does just kind of make rubs me off the wrong way. But, again, Peter in this movie is a little, I don't know, like, just see, some of the things he does kind of... That's, I see where you're coming from. And, that, and that's the thing, is I would almost defend Mary Jane to a point of, like, well, Peter does seem very up his own butt in the movie. So, like, you know, she's putting out all these, like, she's trying Even to tell him, Even before he gets the black suit. Yeah, and, and, like, she tries to tell him, like, um, yeah, like, I understand you're Spider-Man, but, like, I have my stuff going on, too, and I just want, like, some, some support with this stuff, and the writing doesn't really, like, do her or Peter, like, Toby favors, but, like, I think it just comes off as very, like, um, just sort of, uh, damn, what, what, what was I gonna say? Sorry, Joey. <laughs> Contrived? <laughs> yeah, you know what? Yeah. Very contrived? Very contrived, I think, is the word I was going for. Yeah, very contrived. It just feels like, it doesn't feel natural the way that she just kind of out of nowhere will start getting at Peter, I feel like. <laughs> Even though, like, you, you do kind of understand, like, well, Peter is also just really awkward and in over his head. And I don't think he realizes that he seems uninterested. Yeah, like, that's the whole thing. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, because, like, and that's the thing that I, it's hard for me to, like, judge this movie, because, I mean, people hate this movie. I'm not in that camp. I have my problems with it. I'm disappointed by it. It's nowhere near the worst superhero movie ever made. Like, it's still really competently made. The action scenes are some of the best in this franchise. I love it when like, Peter's I'm, riding uh, the little, like, and, and then Harry just, like, comes in and just grabs him. <laughs> oh, that first fight between... That first fight between Harry and Peter is great, although it leads to probably my least favorite thing about this movie. Harry gets amnesia. <sighs> See, the Harry getting amnesia thing also feels very contrived, and it, it I feels like a soap opera. It feels like a soap opera, and it feels like a way 
for Sam Raimi to be like, okay, we need to be able to juggle all these other characters in the movie. So let's just give Harry amnesia and we'll come back to him later. But first we need to like focus more on Sandman. (laughs) I'm just like, this is so sad because there's so much potential there with Harry just being a straight up villain throughout the whole movie. Like, wouldn't it be interesting if Harry had teamed up with Sandman or something like that? Right. Like maybe he was like pulling the, like, or, like, say the amnesia element is still in there. What if, like, this was something someone else brought up. What if he was faking it the entire Ooh. time, his amnesia? That would have been cool. I would have been interested, like, use that to get closer to Peter. Like, I would have liked that or something like that. And the thing is, it just, it leads to such a really cartoony performance out of James Franco. This is, I don't know what he was doing, but it's like... <laughs> He's just wide-eyed a lot of the times in this, and I'm just, like, some of the dialogue he gives, I'm just like, are you are you playing Tommy Wiseau, like, a <laughs> decade early? Dude, there's moments in this movie with him and Kirsten Dunst where I just kind of cringe, because I just kind of feel like it's almost like they let the camera roll for too long on them, just being themselves. Yeah. And it's just like, <sighs> like, remember the scene when they're dancing? Yeah, yeah. It's like, do we need this? Like, <laughs> no. Yeah, it's like, it's, I guess the best way I could describe it, it's almost like it's Sam Raimi turned to 11 in the worst <laughs> kind of way. Like, because yeah. all these kind of things that happen in the movie, they're holy Sam Raimi tone. Like, definitely stuff Sam Raimi would do, but it doesn't gel properly. And he's openly admitted about that, you yes. know, openly admitted that he wasn't happy with how three turned out, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen, too many plots going on at once. And it's just, <sighs> so when Peter gets the black suit and when he's emo Peter, as people infamously refer to him as, uh, so I don't know how intentional this was. I don't, however, I have, so like the, the scene when he's dancing, right? And, and to James Brown, like, drive that funky soul. Like, when he's, like, walking down the street strutting like that, I couldn't believe it as a kid watching that, and I mean that in a bad way. But as I've gotten older and I realize, wait, well, Toby's Peter is a dork. It could be perceived as that's his idea of someone cool. <laughs> and ever since I started looking at it like that, I've come to forgive it a bit. Because I'm like, you know what? That makes sense. Yeah. But I don't know how intentional that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that's the thing. is like when I saw it in theaters, my theater burst out laughing during that whole portion. So I was like, okay, this whole scene is intentionally for laughs. You know, kind of going back to the second movie, it kind of felt like the dark equivalent of the raindrops keep falling on the head scene yeah. from Spider-Man 2. It really does. Like, so I, like, when I was a kid, I never, I didn't hate emo Peter. Like, I came off as jarring, like, uh, just the fact that he's, like, brushes his hair down. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, it's so (laughs) overplayed, but. Yeah. And that's the thing, man, is, like, I like the cheese and the campiness in these movies, but it is almost like Sam Raimi did turn it up to 11 in Spider-Man 3, and he didn't realize, oh, this might be too much. (laughs) This yeah. might be too much. Which I feel like a lot of that was probably like not being confident in the script and just kind of like 
let's just throw something on the screen and see if we can make something work. I, I mean, I think Spider-Man I, Three is a mess of ideas, different hands in the you know different cooks in the kitchen, but then also Sam Raimi not being as confident in his vision as he was in the first two, and just kind of throwing stuff at the wall yes. and seeing what sticks, hoping to save the movie. Yeah. <laughs> And and it sucks because it's like I like I said this was the first movie that I was like really hyped for online and I remember like they were marketing this thing as like the biggest Spider-Man movie ever made and in fact it was pretty huge because until uh, Far From Home came out this was the highest grossing Spider-Man movie it made almost nine hundred million dollars I remember the hype for it and I was excited and when I walked out for the first time I didn't really know what to make of it after being so excited for so long to see it. (laughs) Dude, I remember just, like, people trying to just, like, process it. I remember people, like, Venom fans were just like, oh, oh, he'll be back. He didn't actually die. (laughs) He'll he'll come back. No, he's dead. He got disintegrated. (laughs) Dude, actually, so, what I said before about Spider-Man 1 being about responsibility then two being about choice the way i see it is three is about like i think three is really about like revenge and for yes. forgiveness forgiveness is another thing because throughout the movie peter not only does he so so the black suit it like exacerbates all the issues he has like all the demons he has inside but before that, he's already mad about the reveal with Uncle Ben's killer being the Sandman. And yeah. and I love it in the movie how they, they really make it a point to show, like, Sandman is not a bad person. He just, his daughter's dying, and he feels he needs to go to these really great lengths to save her life. And I love how at the end of the movie, right. when you get Sandman's side of things, and he explains to Peter you start to see Peter soften up a bit and Peter forgives him and they make that a big deal in the movie because it's like, it's just, you you realize that Sandman is not a bad guy and Peter understands this finally. Like, yeah, he killed Uncle Ben, but yeah, Peter didn't understand Sandman's side of the story until the end, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, I don't know, do you like that retcon that uh, Sandman killed Uncle Ben? I don't. I don't mind it because I do think it's it's an interesting twist. I think it's an interesting twist for Peter to find out that one of his villains is actually responsible. Yeah. Do you not like it? Because I feel like I I I, th- I go back and forth on it. Like I. I feel like in the context of the movie, it works because it leads to some great scenes with Tobey Maguire. Like. Say what you will about his acting in this movie. There are some scenes that Tobey Maguire is killing it. And like I think about that first scene in the police station when he finds out. I'm, it's like oh my god, like he is. Arguably, it's really well done. Arguably, Tobey's best acting might really be in Spider-Man Three. To be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. I mean, like I mean, when you think about. I mean, yeah, he's evil Peter, but it's like he's being told what to do. He's got a script that tells him he has to look emo. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like for that. So it's like for that aspect alone, I think it works. I think the only reason I didn't like, 
I go back and forth on it is because now you could argue that this isn't necessarily true, but the reason I kind of don't like it in some way is that it almost feels like Peter is not as responsible for Uncle Ben's death as he thought he was, so his reason for being Spider-Man is almost a little nerf. Now, you can make the argument that's not necessarily true because when Sam is talking about the story, he sees his partner come back, and when he turns and he pulls the trigger, that's what triggers him to kill Uncle Ben. And if he, if Peter stopped his partner, then Sam probably would have just left because Uncle Ben would have talked him out of it. But But again, it's like, I don't know. I mean... In the context of the trilogy, I feel like I can accept it because it feels like a good... This, Like, again, this was not supposed to be the last one, but it feels like a nice kind of closure it to feels, the kind of origin story. It feels nice in the context of the trilogy to bring it back around to Uncle Ben and, and, the, and, and, you know, Uncle Ben's death because that is such a big theme throughout 1 and 2. So I like that they do bring it back in 3. Yes. So it feels like it circles back around... Plus, like like you said, the you know the the robber De- Dennis Carradine, he bumps into Sandman, so he is still directly or indirectly responsible for Uncle Ben's death. And I, I think that uh-huh. how Uncle Ben dies is not necessarily as important as how like Batman's parents die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. How, yeah. Like it's not. Like it's not the same as like. You know, you need them to die and get shot in the alleyway. Like, that's essential. How Uncle Ben dies is not necessary. I think it gives a good reason for Sandman to be, like, have a pivotal part in the trilogy. Because, I mean, if you take that away, he's just some dude that's robbing banks that's trying to save his daughter. Like, he doesn't really have any reason. Yeah. He has no connection to Peter. Yeah. Know? So it's like, you, you, having that connection, it does... It does make it a little, bring it home a little bit more, but it does kind of perpetuate this whole thing of like, why does every villain have to have some kind of connection to Peter Parker's personal life? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's also fair, but I kind of like, I do appreciate where Raimi would always be coming from in that, like, he just felt like, right, well, yeah. you need it for the, 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 for the heft of the story. I appreciate where he would be coming from with that stuff. I prefer it over all the villains being Stark employees. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, now that you put it like that, I appreciate it even more. Dude, yeah. I, so another thing that bothers me, though, in this movie is how Bernard, the butler, knew the truth all along and never told Harry until the... That is easily the, one of the worst things. Dude, like... I don't know if you've ever watched Spider-Man 3.1, which is like the... Ex- oh, the editor's cut? Yes, yes. That's what I meant. The editor's cut. And they straight up just removed that scene. <laughs> I love that. I, I remember love- when I watched it, I just felt like something was off. I was like, this is like the same movie, but like, what is missing from it? And then I realized, oh, they took out Bernard. <laughs> they got rid of that scene. <laughs> That's how bad that scene is. The editor's cut is interesting. You know, it doesn't, like, wholly improve the movie. I mean, scenes are flipped around, which is a little jarring. And so, But some of the scenes they put into the movie are great. One is uh, when Peter uh, is sitting in his room. I think this is after... Again, the movie flip-flops... The editor's cut flip-flops orders of some scenes, so I might be getting this wrong. 
but I think it's after he finds out that Harry is dating Mary Jane, dating Mary Jane. <laughs> Again, I think the context is flipped in the editor's cut, but I love it when he looks at the suitcase and they have him actually open it up and you see the suit is breathing. I actually don't even remember that, but that's creepy. You were one of the first people to point it out to me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, how have I completely forgotten something I pointed out to you? <laughs> wow, I mean, okay, Whitey. Fair, the editor, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, though, the editor's cut came out three years ago, so it's it like... Has been, there has been time since. But yeah, man, now that that's back in my mind, like, that's actually really creepy. And again, like, that's why in a weird yeah. way, Sam Raimi was perfect to adapt the symbiote. But yeah, because like I said, outside of Venom, the symbiote works so well, even better than it does in the Venom movies, because the symbiote in this movie feels like a force. It feels versatile. Like that scene when Peter's taking the black suit off and it doesn't want to come off. It feels horrifying. Like it, they really make it feel like a living creature in this. Another scene that they add into the editor's cut that I really loved is um, and this was a scene that I know you knew about before the editor's cut even came out. Mm-hmm. And that was the scene with the sandcastle when Sandman becomes a sandcastle and sees his daughter, uh, sees his daughter again. And dude, I'm going to be honest with you. I saw that scene. I, I saw that scene. I started choking up. It's a beautiful scene. Any scene where it lets, where it lets uh, Sandman breathe a little bit and he uses his powers whether it's to, like, make the sandcastle for his, for his daughter, or even the scene when he first, like, remember when he first has his powers and he gets up? The CGI in that scene is amazing. When they show him take oh, his, absolutely. like, sand form for the first time, beautiful. <laughs> I, would say, I would say for the special effects, this is probably the best-looking Spider-Man movie out of the three. <laughs> I agree, yeah. For sure. Um, um, but um, what was the other thing? Uh, but yeah, I guess the other thing we got to talk about because we talked about it with the second one. I love Christopher Young's score, especially like the symbiote theme and the Sandman theme. They're so good. Dude, what makes me so mad and sad at the same time is the Christopher Young score has never been released. Not officially. It really hasn't? Not officially. You can't buy it. Dude. That's lame. Right? Dude, I looked it up. I've looked this up. I noticed it wasn't on Spotify or YouTube as an official release, and I looked it up. For whatever reason, Sony never released it. That's so sad, because it's like, I think about, like, one of my favorite themes, which, again, is just a retread of Danny Elfman's theme, but I love it. I love when the goblin theme comes back, and it's more heroic, because it's, Harry coming in to save mm-hmm. the day, and then the main theme kicks on when Harry comes in and they team up, which, but I love that ending. I love when they yeah. team up and they fight Venom and Sandman together. Like, the dialogue is terrible. Like, it's corny <laughs> as hell, but I, the you know what? fight itself After is everything <laughs> that Peter and Harry has gone through, it's nice to just see them be friends again. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, these movies are always been corny. Like, yeah, this one takes it a little too far, but it's kind of one of those things where it's just like, at the end of the day, I've seen worse Spider-Man <laughs> movies. I can forgive it. Dude, Harry... So it's like... Bro, P- Harry and Peter teaming up against Venom and Sandman was the Avengers before the MCU. <laughs> that was, like, the big team up. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, so... 
I guess well, I guess the wrap this up a little bit, but yeah. So Spider-Man three came out, and I knew a lot of people were pretty disappointed in it. Like this didn't this didn't do that well critically, from what I got. I mean, it still got positive reviews, but not nearly as like glowing as the last couple ones. I think that critic reviews were very mixed, like very mixed. But then fan reaction was worse. <laughs> They hated it. Yeah, they hated yeah. it, dude. Like, I remember people, like, people were, like, saying, like, sue Sam Raimi and stuff like that. Like, just, like, they hated how this movie turned out. Dude. But then, and then I remember, like, that was bleeding into, like, pressure for 4. Because 4, Sam Raimi, he wanted 4 to be the best Spider-Man movie ever. He wanted to bring in uh, Vulture. He wanted to bring in Black Cat or Vultress, rather, I guess. Uh, I never did understand that rumor. Like, was it Black Cat or not? <laughs> or was it the Vultress? I, I like, don't... <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, which, I'll have to ask Sam Raimi if I ever meet him, which <laughs> will probably never happen, but... Dude, we, um, like, by the way, like, because you brought those up, like, we should probably also note... John Malkovich was cast as Vulture, and uh, yeah, Anne Hathaway John was cast as Vulture. Anne Hathaway was cast as Felicia Hardy. Whether it would have been Vultures or Black Cat, it would have been Anne Hathaway. <laughs> and then the biggest thing, and this is my head cannon. Even though this movie, ne- even though Spider Man Four never happened, this is my head cannon. Then we also get to see. The big cameo man of himself in these movies, Bruce Campbell, <laughs> as Quentin Beck Mysterio. So my head canon <laughs> is that he was Quentin Beck the entire trilogy. He was just going through different jobs. Funny you say that because I don't want to. I don't want to say that it's real on here. But have you ever seen the Spider-Man Four concept art, like the storyboards? I have, and that was Mysterio. And that was very clearly, I think, Bruce Campbell in the Mysterio getup. Yeah. So I think they were going to canonize that. <laughs> I think. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the whole reason I brought it up was because it's like everyone was like, that was supposed to be Bruce Campbell. And I was like, that would have been great. I would have loved that. That would have made so much sense. I would have been pissed off that Mysterio didn't get a lot to do because I love Mysterio. He's like my, one of my favorite Spider-Man villains. But... I mean, like, in the context of the Sam Raimi movies, I would have forgave it. But, obviously, what happened was is that Sony was planning a reboot behind Sam Raimi's back, and Sam Raimi was not feeling confident in the screenplays, so he decided to quit, and then we eventually got the Andrew Garfield movies, and then now the Tom Holland movies. But these movies, they are so impactful that they're bringing them back into the MCU canon. Yeah, and, and and just, you know, at the timing of this recording, keep in mind, like, we're still, like, three months out from the movie. Only confirmed returning cast members are Alfred, would-be Alfred Molina. He's the only confirmed one. But the trailer very clearly... And Jamie Foxx. Yes, Jamie Foxx as well. But clearly the trailer did show a, a Raimi Green Goblin bomb with Willem Dafoe laughing in the background. And, I mean, there's so many rumors about Toby coming back and Andrew Garfield. It's just, at this point, it's like the worst-kept secret in Hollywood. So I'm, I'm very it happy. 100% is. Like, I mean, I mean, well, have you seen that? You saw that leaked video of Andrew Garfield on the set, right? Oh, yeah. It, that's real. Some people are in denial trying to say, oh, it's fake. Nah, that's real, dude. 
I, yeah, I think it's real. I mean, like, if it winds up not being real, I'm going to look like a fool in front of however many people listen to this podcast. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah. But it's crazy that these movies have such a legacy that even after so many different adaptations of Spider-Man, he has about as many interpretations as Batman does. And these movies still resonate. Like, the memes. The memes <laughs> with this movie trilogy. <laughs> Oh man! Like they're up there with the prequel trilogy on memes, dude. The the so like if nothing else, that's why I love Spider Man Three is because of what it gave us, the memes. <laughs> right, but yeah, um, but yeah. So spite yeah, the Spider Man trilogy. I mean, I, how would you rank these, by the way? Because I have a ranking, but it might be kind of controversial, slightly controversial. Interesting. So. Okay, my ranking would be, I would actually put Spider-Man 1 at number 1, and then Spider-Man 2, and then Spider-Man 3. And the reason I say that is because I... That's mine! (laughs) I had a feeling when you said it might be controversial, but here's the thing. The reason I put 1 over 2, even though I do think 2 is technically a better movie, I just think that 1 just perfectly encapsulates what makes comic book movies so great. I think it sets the template right. so well. Like, it, it perfectly combines and balances the, the, the campiness and the zaniness of comic books. But Sam Raimi finds a way to yeah. very, like, sincerely have these very, like, genuine-feeling characters and, and story beats. So, I mean, that's why I put one over two. Two, again, I, put, I consider two technically better but I just think two is also a little too heavy for me sometimes. Like I couldn't just put on two and it have a good be. time. You know what I mean? Like I can enjoy no, one really yeah. because of Willem Dafoe being ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the Dark Knight in that sense, where it's like you gotta go back to it when you're in the right mood to watch Spider Man Two. Where with Spider Man One, it's such a rewatchability factor that you could just pop it in no matter what. So, yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Like, it's funny. When I told my brother that, like, it might be controversial that I'd said one was two, he was like, I don't think it's that controversial. He was like, well, people put two over one usually. He's like, he's like, I think it'd be more controversial if you said three was your favorite, which <laughs> I do know someone who says that three is their favorite. You know what? In this world where everyone likes to hate on three, I have to respect someone who has the balls to say that. <laughs> Right, like that's the thing. It's like, like I said, this three is not the worst superhero movie ever made, and it's not even the worst Spider-Man movie ever made. And it's not honestly, and like it's competent me made enough. It's like, yeah, Sam Raimi wasn't as confident out of his vision in that time, but it's still a solid movie. Like I can watch it and not hate myself. Like I might like <laughs> exaggerate. I might like exaggerate like some things about it, like that irritate me, but. At the end of the day, it's just a movie. Like, who cares? It's just a movie that, in all honesty, in in another filmmaker's hands could have been a much bigger train wreck. Well, this was a lot of fun. I had a blast talking about these movies with you, buddy. Uh, it's Same, been a great man. time, like, catching up on you. So. I was looking forward to this for the longest time, dude. <laughs> dude, same here. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so... Well, now that we wrap that, now we wrap it up. I guess, guess we'll have to call it a night. So, have a good night, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you all for listening to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Special shout out to our special dudes this week, Andrew Gifford and Alex Wykey. Thank you so much. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. We love you both so much. And to John and Kenny Armstrong, you guys are the greatest. Thank you for everything you do. We love you as well. And next week, our final episode of 2021. Come out with us. We'll go out to the coast, get together, have a few laughs, maybe hear the bells ring. And you know what they say. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Stay tuned. I've been lied to. I've been bamboozled. He stole that guy's pizzas.